Is Alabama in decline? Is LSU the favorite in the SEC West? And can anybody dethrone Georgia in the Southeastern Conference where on this College Game Day podcast, it just means more? Glad to have you with us on the College Game Day podcast for Wednesday, August 23rd. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel with you looking ahead at the SEC season and delighted to have a terrific guest to start things off. Joining us now, we're pleased to be joined by Kirby Smart, head coach of Georgia, two-time national champion, five times they've won the division, twice they've won the Southeastern Conference Championship. Kirby, great to see you. Uh, The thing that starts when you talk about Georgia this year is being on the precipice of history. From your perspective, what is the significance of the opportunity to make history with this program and win three consecutive national championships? Well, when you think about how many times it's been done, I think, Reese, that's that's the, the precipice. You say, well, why is it so hard to do? What makes it so difficult? It's a lot of the same things that make it hard to repeat. You know, to get to, that's not a, a common feat either. But you know well as I do, we don't focus on that 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 third one or trying to get the three-peat. That's not a focal point for us. We really don't talk about it. We don't worry about it. I get the hype around it because when you think about how little it's been done, um, it, it, it can be a special thing. But uh, we, we've got a lot of new players. So uh, a lot of those new players are hungry. And, you know, my biggest concern right now is fighting complacency because you've got – this senior and junior class who've all won one. And uh, we had a really interesting speaker come in the other day, Sylvester Croom, and I thought he had great insight and great perspective having been at Alabama as a player. And he won three consecutive SEC championships and debatable you know, national championships in a row because they were voted. But he, he talked to our team about that and how he felt like that third year how uh, there wasn't a lot of hunger on the, the upper end of the leadership. And I thought that was uh, really interesting. Well, you've gone through this preseason camp, and while you've got a lot of production returning on defense, but you have some really new faces in key places. How does, how does that complain? What do you look for when you're looking for evidence of that type of complacency? Well, how they practice each day. I mean, we had a scrimmage the other day, and you, know, you could point out plays and say, okay, look at that guy. That guy hasn't played, and maybe that guy's not on scholarship, and he's playing really hard, and the guy he's going against started last year. Which one of them's hungrier? And when you use the visual evidence, it's just it's so glaring to me when you have someone that's trying to do something and accomplish something versus someone that maybe already has. And the more you can show that, highlight that, point that out, I think a true competitor, it bothers them, you know, and maybe you get a little more out of them. And, and when you see something, it's different than somebody telling you something. So I, I think those visuals are good for them. Who, who have been some guys who've wanted to eat off the floor? Yeah, we've got uh, uh, several guys to me that have had uh, good camps, but they're not, you know, household names. We've got a, uh, a kid that's probably going to be one of our returners and uh, slot receivers in uh, Makai Muse, who has just been – he was great in the spring game. He made some plays in the, the spring game. But, man, he's had a really good camp, and he, he wants to eat off the floor every day. I mean, he's five foot eight, 185 pounds, and he's blocking and playing bigger than he is. He's had a great camp. Jackson Meeks is another guy who's had a, a good camp. And, you know, we've got some defensive guys. I think Javon Bullard has had a good camp and really competitive. But if, if I hope they all want to eat off the floor, <laughs> 
or we're in trouble. We had somebody speak to the team. They said, they said, there's two times you eat off the floor. Either the floor is really clean or you're hungry as hell. And uh, we, we were, we're hoping that uh, we're, we're hungry as hell. Kirby, uh, Carson Beck, uh, you named the starter last week. And, uh, you know, he's thrust in a really interesting position, right? Replacing Stetson Bennett, you know, has the hopes uh, of this of this Georgia run kind of on his shoulders. He's not someone who college football fans know particularly well. He's had some nice moments as a backup. Give us a little insight into him as a quarterback, but also as a person and, and how, how you think he's uh, ready for this moment. Well, as a person, he's, he's very unique. He's one of uh... – He's he's very what's the word very level. He's even kill almost all the time. Not not extremely emotional. He uh, he keeps his uh, emotions in check. And he he told me he said I've been that way since a, a young kid where I was very volatile as a baseball player. You know he was a really talented baseball player. Uh, committed to the University of Florida for baseball in high school, and then decided to go the football route. And um, he's. He's he's different. He the players really enjoy him. They rally around him. Um, he has a way with the uh, the skill players. Um, calm, cool, and collected in the poise in the pocket. You know, and the interesting thing about Carson that people don't talk about is that there was a time when he was the two in our first national championship run, and Stetson was the three, and Stetson only took reps with the threes. We play Clemson. Carson's the two. We come out of the game. And JT Daniels has an oblique injury, and we've got to go the next week. And we weren't sure JT was going to be able to play or not. So, enter Carson. He took the reps as the two that entire week. I think we were getting ready to play UAB. And right at the end of the week, we thought Stetson, you know, Coach Muffin came to me and said, Hey, look, I, I think we got to go with Stetson here. I think Stetson gives us a better chance to win. He's played a little better this week. And Carson spoke to the team about missing that opportunity and how it affected him and how he didn't he didn't think that he had prepared the right way he didn't think that he was prepared and it went on to happen where Stetson you know never looked back played for two years but Carson Beck could have been our quarterback that entire time and uh he learned from that he learned uh invaluable lessons from that so I'm, I'm I'm excited to see what he can do what's the biggest difference and and I'd heard that story a couple of times and maybe the moment was a little big for Carson that opportunity to be the starting quarterback at Georgia in that stage of his career. What's the biggest change, the biggest area of progress you've seen from that week where he didn't hold on to the opportunity to grasping the opportunity uh, during this camp? Just experience. I mean, from that point in time to now, and I don't, I don't think for one second with this kid that the moment was too big for him. I think that, that the week of practice, Stetson did better than him. I think if he'd gone out and played that game, he would have been super successful. Number one, he's got a great weapons around him. Um, he's got a really good offensive system. It would have been that way that game. There was no plays that Stetson made that Carson couldn't have made. I think he was definitely ready for it. I think he just maybe missed the opportunity in practice going against a pretty good defense that year. It was one of the you know the best I've ever been around. So um, what he's been able to do since then is grow. Uh, get countless experiences as a two, um, go against really good players every day in practice. And, you know, people point to the fact, well, he hasn't done it in a game. You know, I, around here we value practice. And, and a lot of times the practice is more valuable than a game in terms of who you're going against. Kirby, you know, you've won two national championships. People know you're a great coach. I get the feeling sometimes, though, that people in college football – don't know a lot about you other than the fact that you're a great coach. 
non-football related, what's the what's the one thing outside of football that you are passionate about that you love to do? Spend time with my family. I mean, I, I, I would rather, I mean, any minute that I'm not, you know, recruiting, making our team better, making our organization better, thinking of ways we can practice better. I want to spend with my family because I only have so much of that. And uh, time's fleeting. My, my kids are now 10th graders. It's scary. I'm seeing all their friends go off to college. Um, and then I've got a sixth grade son that's growing up fast and playing, you know, in all sports with all three of my kids. So the most important thing to me is that I spend time as a husband and father. And that's much more important than if I ever won a national championship or not. I just I want to I want to be a good husband and father. Now, I know sometimes coaches have trouble with parents. What kind of sports dad are you? <laughs> probably over the top. Uh, I'm that guy that every uh, every rec league coach probably hates because uh, I want my kids to I want my kids to do well and and, and play hard. I do think that um, I'm probably over the top with with the discipline part, and and I tell the coaches all the time I, I'm not going to get on you about playing time or any of that. All I want you to do is make sure my child has discipline and represents our family the right way in how he plays. And uh, sometimes that's a chore in itself with uh, with my kids. Kirby, I remember going to visit your parents uh, up in Rayburn Gap a couple of years ago, and your mom told me that your family, because of bowls, would have July miss instead of Christmas because uh, there was there wasn't time for the whole family to get together. Has that remained a uh, tradition as Georgia's marched deep in the playoffs here? Yeah, that has. That's always been there. She started that when when we don't get together Christmas, and um, I think that's smart because it's hard uh, to get. The, the siblings and all the grandkids together for Christmas. We can't all go to the same place. You know how it is. You go with your immediate family when you have an opportunity. And for us, that's been maybe three days. The 23rd, we're off, 24th, 25th, and then we're right to a bowl site, 26th. So we get to do that in July. I think um, she's been a little over the top with the gifts. You know, it's like once you get a certain age, we can stop giving the gifts at July. It's just the act of kindness that you're there. She's probably a little over top bringing a Christmas tree too for July <laughs> because it's about 110 degrees in uh, uh, in Georgia in, in, in July. But the time spent is just awesome, and uh, the grandkids get to play together, cousins get to play together, and they, they all have a blast. What's the best July gift you've received from your mom? Lottery tickets. She <laughs> says I can't buy you anything that you can't get yourself. She said, but I know you don't like going to convenience stores. And she goes, I know you love scratch-offs. So she'll hand me 10 scratch-offs, of which the ones she gave this year are still sitting in my truck. I hadn't even scratched them off yet. I hadn't had a chance to to look at them. But I did uh, I did like that growing up and enjoyed uh, playing the Georgia Lottery. Kirby, when you – stunned y'all. I stunned yeah, y'all. Yeah, I know. I yeah, no. <laughs> what, what, the not image of you in your truck spot. scratching the ticket got me a little bit. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the most amount of money you've won on a scratch-off ticket? Probably about $5. I mean, you just feel good when you win a ticket, you know, because you think you get another chance. But uh, I think the most I may have ever gotten is $5. That ought to teach you not to do it. Right? Yeah. Is there is there an analogy? Because you grasp things and use it with your team so well. You just said you get another chance with a scratch-off ticket. Have you ever used anything like that in one of your speeches to your team? It's funny you say that because actually this fall uh, we talked about it and we started every team meeting in camp with uh, defining 
a sports site guy called me and said, look, you talk about the process and you talk about what the process is. And you talk about not worrying about outcomes, but worrying about just winning moments, just trying to get better in moments. And so he said, I'm going to give you a 10 day outline. And for the beginning of every practice, when we have a team meeting, you just kind of go over what is that? Because we got freshmen in the room that have no idea what you mean when you say, you know, it's all about the process. It's all about the development. It's not about, you know, outcomes. And I explained it to them. I said, guys, I love lottery tickets. And you know what? The more lottery tickets you have, the better chance you have at winning. It's just the law of averages. So the more moments you win within practice and the quicker you overcome a loss or not let a loss kind of snowball into two, you're getting more lottery tickets. So you're getting more, we call it ping pongs in the, in the, in the, in the, in the little thing you roll around and pull one out. Yeah. So we, we, we've used that analogy and they, they seem to understand that. So if they can win more moments, then we've got a better chance of success. SEC media days, you had some really insightful things to say about leadership that that to be a leader, you had to make hard decisions that often affected people negatively that you cared about, that you're going to be disliked and you're going to be misunderstood and sometimes be criticized and not have, uh, not have a way to rebut that line of thinking. I thought that was really interesting on, on many different levels. First of all, how did you how did you come to those three things that you outlined as being key in being a leader? Well, like I, I talked about in the SEC Media Days, I have a uh, it's actually a post-it note right back there um, behind me that, that I tend to read, and it it jumped out at me as I was leaving to go to SEC media days, because uh, we've got a guy, Drew Brannon, that works with our team uh, from Amplos, and he's right up in Greenville, South Carolina. But ever since Trevor Moad, who I had been a part of, and you know well, Reese, it's just one of the best ever to do it in all sports world. Uh, It was a dear friend of mine and was with me the moment after we lost that national title in uh, 2017. I always wanted to use resources outside of uh, just our own university and, and Drew and Amplos have done a great job. He, he, he sent me that, I guess probably three or four years ago and I've kept it and I've never really used it. I just, I use it in my own day, day, daily walk and thought process. And, you know, when you lose games and people are critical of you as a leader and decisions you make, that's part of being a leader. You're going to make those costs of leadership. You're going to have those costs where, you know, you're not going to have a chance to defend yourself. Um, you're going to get disliked. And I thought about it from our players' perspective. The guys we took to the SEC media days, Kamari said, and those guys that we took, man, they are incredible. Brock Bowers, they're not they're not fearful at all of those costs. They 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 understand that when they get on somebody, somebody may not like them as much. But that cost does come with leadership because everybody's talking about, you know, how you can be this great leader, but they never talk about the things you have to give up to be a leader. And, and I, I thought those things were unique and worth sharing. And those three players embody that. What's the most hurtful thing that you've had to give up to be the leader that you are? Well, I would say time with my family. You know, I mean, like realistically, it's probably, you know, you have to go with quality over quantity. And I, I like being uh, with my family. I like being with my kids and we get, you know, you get a break, Reese, you get a chance to go and reset a week in the spring break and maybe a week in the summer, but it's not like, you know, maybe I wish it could be where I got more time with them and, and got to enjoy it. You have to go with, with quality over quantity and you probably have to make sacrifices um, to be the leader. And, and I think friendships, maybe sometimes with coaches, 
you know, you got guys on your staff and you're going to be the leader of an organization and staff and you can still be friends with them. Um, but you have to understand that you have to confront and demand if things aren't getting done right. And, and that's a transition I had to make pretty quickly when I got here from Alabama. I want to take you back to January 14th and the celebration of the national championship, a euphoric moment. You've gone back to back. What did you do immediately after the celebration was over that day? The Are we talking about the game? I'm, I'm not no, sure I'm ta- the talking about the day when you guys had the celebration on campus after you'd won the national championship and you came back in mid-January. Oh, uh, we had we had recruits here, and uh, I got to spend some time with recruits uh, in my office, uh, visiting with those guys. And I think we had maybe eight or nine kids here that day, so we met with them in the locker room. My mother and father were here for that, so I got to spend a little time with my uh, mom and dad before they headed back to uh, Raven County. And I really don't remember after that. But it was I brought that up because that seems to be it's a euphoric moment for anyone in any program. And yet you're turning the page, looking for the next great recruiting class, the next great uh, group of future Georgia Bulldogs. And then reality hits in such a tragic way in the morning hours after that and the tragic accident that cost Devin Willick his life. What were those moments like when you when you got that call? Oh, hardest moments I've ever been through as a coach. I mean, you just dread ever getting a call like that, you know, and I think for me, I, I'd always thought we, we, we always talk at the end of uh, spring practice or when we do spring break or anytime our kids are going Thanksgiving, Christmas break, you know, we talk as a staff about, you know, well, hey guys, look, be careful, um, be mindful, um, be be conservative on the road. And we, we want to make sure nobody, I always tell the story about a young man in Alabama that's the only player I've been a part of that we lost tragically to a drug overdose over spring break. And we always try to tell a story to say, just be careful when you're not with us. Um, and I think to, to, to that moment of loss and getting that phone call at two, three in the morning, just uh, how tragic an accident it was. And you almost can't believe it's real, you know, and then the next moment you're in uh, the emergency room and you're in there with seven, eight of your players as the word spreads and, and, and everybody's just, just so sad. It's um, it's part of the human condition. I think that oftentimes we react to tragedy to gain perspective. In some ways, I think it's cliched when when people bring it up. So I hesitate to put it in that terminology. But what what did that time? What did that loss? How did that impact you in terms of your perspective on what your mission is as a head coach? Yeah, it, it outlines that, that every day we spend with these young men, you're trying to shape their lives. And like everything we do now in terms of being on time to something, uh, decision making, it's not about winning games. It's about being more successful in life. You know, like how do the young men that come out of this program better themselves for the rest of their life because of the qualities we've tried to instill in them? That might be dealing with heat. That might be dealing with hard times. That might be dealing with with things off the field that might be going to the resources we have in mental health to make sure that I share and I'm open about it. But we certainly direct uh, so many things to, to what's going to be like in life because we want them to be more successful because they chose to come here. 
Kirby, the the team has gone through a collective mourning process, I would think, over the last six or eight months. Can, can you just walk walk us through through that as you're as you're dealing with the tragedy and in, in, in helping push young people forward, but at the same time, you know, obviously trying to push the program forward. What's that collective loss been like for the young men in your program? Well, I think everybody handles mourning different ways. You know, I, I, I was taught that right after the accident when you speak to spiritual leaders, and we've got an unbelievable team chaplain. Um, who does a great job, and uh, he, he has been incredible for our team. Thomas Settles, and incredible for me. But he talked about everybody mourns um, in their own way, and we certainly have uh, members of the team that were um, close, really close to Devin, especially in the offensive line. Then we had a group of 25 mid-years who had just gotten on campus, you know, so that they were they didn't really get to know Devin. They had not they had been through a, f- a few practices, and they didn't know how to react. Um, and maybe had only been around him once or twice. So I think everybody, you know, mourns in different ways and uh, deals with things in different ways. And I, I do know this, everyone on this team and this organization respect uh, both of them and, and understand that it's a tragic loss. What types of things do you anticipate doing this year that, that might honor him or carry on his memory? I think that's something we've talked to the players about a lot. And um, we've got a leadership group that kind of has a lot to do with that and imparts knowledge in us. And we talked about that during the spring game. And uh, a lot of people got an opportunity before the spring game started on the first play and things like that. So that's something that's ongoing. And and we talked to those guys about it. How do you judge the coach's responsibility, the leaders of the program's responsibility in terms of setting standards for things like uh, you mentioned that you talked to players about being safe a lot, but in terms of dealing with the number of uh, speeding violations that you guys have had, I'm sure you've talked about a lot. What is the coach's responsibility in that? Coach's responsibility is set a great example, uh, set a standard of excellence, um, make sure the players understand the principles and values of the organization. You know, I think every leader of an organization, you, you say, okay, here's, Here's what we have to abide by. Here are the rules and regulations of what we have, whether that's gambling, hazing, uh, uh, everything, off-the-field behavior. I mean, you, you, there's so many things now that are pitfalls. We just got through sitting through a one-hour uh, gambling seminar at an athletic department. And when you start looking at, at the, the pitfalls that are out there for student-athletes, there's a lot of them. So you set the standard in terms of what you say, what you do, what your actions say, and also what you do for the players. But at the end of the day – we're trying to make these young men, in my case, better, more outstanding contributors to society. And if when they leave here, they are more uh, capable of being contributors to, to society and being husbands and fathers, then I think we've done our job. And that, that's my ultimate goal is to do that in a way that, that shows uh, great respect for our university. When you look at, at what's ahead for this team this season, how do you, how do you define a successful season, given the fact that it, you've raised it to the level that it's national championship or bust? Well, I, you say that, not me. I don't think it's national championship or bust. I don't think any coach could ever say uh, that that's truly what it is. That's not believable to me. It's not probably sustainable. Um, but what, what measures success is the same thing it did the last seven years. Did we do the best possible job we could with this team? Did we get – the most out of this team um, that we possibly could. Um, that comes from the team buying into that. That comes from everybody in the organization buying into that. But, you know, you can't quantify that in a number of wins and losses. I just – I don't think you can you can do that. you got to say, did I get the most out of this group? Do, 
do you really have any concept of what you've done to your fan base? I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, I, I committed the atrocity of voting you number two in the preseason poll with the simple caveat. I just want to see the quarterback play, and I think you have the best roster, and if he plays well, I'll probably move you back to number one. And your entire fan base, they, they act as if I said you were going to go seven and five. You realize what you've yeah, done? No, I, I don't know that. I don't know. I think I think they would feel that way regardless. I don't know that I've done that. I think uh, fans uh, are passionate, especially in the southeast, about everybody. You could have put anybody you put two, they'll say they should have been one, right? If you put Ohio State two, they should have been one. Alabama two, they should have been one. I mean, it doesn't matter who you put there. They'll always argue that their team is the best. That's what makes college football and this podcast even watched. So people care and they're passionate about it, but. I'm not going to lose any sleep over any of it because I'm, I'm a lot more worried about eating off the floor than I am uh, where we're put preseason. It is because Reese went to Alabama, by the way, Kirby. I think you know oh, that. No, so, no. It's always <laughs> that's, that's that's where we it's know, we know he's a home. Oh come on now! No, nobody, nobody's been well. Okay, a few people have been better to the dogs than I have, but I've been pretty good too, though, over the years. Uh, even I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Kirby, sitting here on August 20th or, or, or whatever today is, you, you've had so much turnover and you've been able to replenish that so well the last two years. I'm curious, what are some maybe identities of your team early on that you've seen build the first three weeks now of, uh, of, of summer practice? Like, are there, is there a tenet or two that, that, this, that, that every team's different, that, that this one will be built on that you can see starting to form? Yeah, hard work works. That's what we've been saying. You know, hard work works. And uh, you, not, not everybody's willing to work hard, but hard work works. And we've got a tremendous foundation. Um, I, I, I don't think, because you talk about turnover, I actually think what makes us the most different right now is retention. So, you know, I'm not talking about retention of just coaches. I'm talking about retention of players. And we have not taken a very large amount, I would argue, in the country, maybe in the last three years, we're probably the lowest in terms of taking guys out of the portal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we keep a lot of ours. And what happens when you do that, the hard work works motto, the young players that work hard or learn how to work hard and see others work hard, they buy into it and they sell that culture in your program. And that's what I never saw a true value on my early years and said, you know what, let's invest in these guys. Let's pour into these guys. Let's do more from a mental aspect and from a being tough physically aspect. And let's see if it works when a kid's in his third or fourth year and he's become a a pretty good player. But more important as a player is he's a strong leader and you've got 25 strong leaders in your junior and senior class. It makes for a, a pretty strong team. We've, we've seen so much activity in the transfer portal, and we hear the laments from a lot of coaches who say, well, nobody wants to face the hard things. Clearly, if someone comes to Georgia, they have to embrace the fact that it's supposed to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have to work hard. Which is, which is more important in your judgment to identify that when you're recruiting somebody that they have that type of makeup, or can it be developed once you get uh, the player in Athens? It's both. I mean, I, number one, we don't want to recruit someone that doesn't fit our culture. So, I mean, we, we've we've turned down talented players. And I was like, man, I just think that guy's got a huge portal risk. So let's say that we put a good year of work into him, maybe two, and we lose him. Why not take the guy that has less portal risk that we 
put one, two years into and we get return on investment in year three and four because he's going to be a quality leader and a good player. If they're not going to be here. It doesn't matter how good they are. And you're, you're speculating. I mean, you're speculating to say they're not going to be there, but it, it happens. And, and if you find a trait that makes it more likely they're not or there's a higher risk, I, I just assume, hey, look, we're only going to get 25 a year, maybe. So let's get 25 that are going to stick and stay and and not – you know, and not bat 70%, let's bat 85%. That 15% difference in year three and four is incredibly different. Um, so we don't have a, we don't have like a perfect potion or remedy, but that's important to us. It's more important than how they play as a player is can we retain them? You're one of the leaders of this sport now with the realignment, the conference expansion, what the future might hold. Uh, you've obviously dealt with the transfer of the NIL portion of it uh, extremely effectively. What do you think about the direction of the sport overall? Man, it's a lot to answer. I mean, you didn't put it in one part. You kind of put all of them together. And uh, that's like taking, you know, six crosswinds. Because the wind's blowing this way, the wind's blowing this way, the wind's blowing this so way. So how do you navigate all those crosswinds? How do you navigate all of them? Day by day. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get caught up in conference realignment because day by day it doesn't affect me you know it might affect the student athlete and in part that that affects all of us but I, I control the controllables I focus on what matters most and then when you're sitting in an SEC meeting and your commissioner asks you your opinion or your you know direction or what's going on you give that best you you listen and learn and you try to talk about experience of a student athlete of what's impactful and makes them better but to sit here and say I'm an expert on conference realignment or where it's going, that, that's not my that's not my expertise. To tell you about Portal and NIL, I deal with that on a daily basis. So I think that I can give a lot more input on that. But navigating all of it, I trust the leadership that we have in the SEC. And, and with what uh, Greg Sankey's done, it's been incredible. Kirby, appreciate the time. Wish you luck. Wish you luck on the scratch-off tickets. Uh, the, yeah, I need the, the surest the surest bet you can get is to take Georgia in the over whatever the win total is. So I uh, look forward to seeing you at some point this season. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, Reese. Thank oh, you. Hope you can scratch those on the bye week, Kirby. You can find some time. <laughs> only, if, only if they're winners. <laughs> Pete, I really appreciate it how open and how uh, easygoing Kirby was with a lot of things. The intensity always uh, bleeds through whenever you talk to him. Yes, you're comfortable when you win a couple of national championships, so he would hate that word comfortable. But he ought to be comfortable with this team. Even with the people they've lost, they've got a lot of key contributors coming back. Yeah, I really feel like... uh... You know, when, when I asked the identity question on the, uh, you know, to him, he sort of went thematically. And I was curious if any on-field identity. Now, Kirby, not wanting to give away any competitive advantages, probably didn't want to uh, didn't want to say what they look like. UT Martin's staff is listening to this podcast, so they may uh, they might have gleaned something about what they could come out in on third down. But I really feel like the identity of this team comes uh, comes up front, Reese. You know, I, I really feel like the. Uh, you know, the Cedric Von Prawns up the middle, Amarius Mims, one of the better tackles in college football. And then you can see a little bit of that, like, early Alabama. Let's let's start the identity through running the ball with Kendall Milton. Let's use Brock Bowers in a lot of different ways. We don't have to take shots all the time. And I really feel like that becomes 
this new Georgia identity. And I think the talent is really well situated for them to play a way that allows them to manage their very manageable schedule. There's not really anybody, in my judgment, on their schedule who can even accept a gift from Georgia and beat them until they get to November when Ole Miss comes to Athens, and that game's at home. And then the much-anticipated game against Tennessee, they've got stars on defense. Malachi Starks, who was great as a young player last year, is just going to be better. Smile Munden tackles everybody uh, as much attention as Jalen Carter got last year, and rightfully so. I remember standing on the sideline with you in the Tennessee game and watching Nazir Stackhouse just, you know, collapse that really good the Tennessee offensive front last year. And he's got Mikel Williams, who's a good pass rusher. Um, I don't see any way we've spent a great deal of time on Georgia, and we should because they are the two-time champion and going for that history that no one has done since Minnesota in the pre-poll era. The 11-and-a-half win total for the Bulldogs, given that schedule and given their ability and their talent, seems to be an easy over. Do you concur with that? I mean, I guess it's just I've been around long enough free sports. It's never easy to go undefeated, right? I don't recall any easy undefeated seasons in my 20 years doing this. There's always like a night where things have to go right or a night where you get a bounce, a night like they had in Columbia last year, for example. Like there, there will be adversity. Um, I think this Georgia team is very good. I think they're the best team in college football, unlike you and your reckless voting. Um, but I also don't think they're infallible and unchallengeable. Um, I, I think they are the deserved favorite. And I, I think, gun to my head, I would probably predict them to three-peat. But I do think there will be – there is always a moment of adversity. Does it come at Auburn? Does it come when Kentucky comes to town? Um, this team reminds me of some of these Saban teams when human nature – and Georgia become the biggest obstacle. I agree with you, but somebody's going to have to step up and be better. And the thing that I favor about Georgia in the schedule and taking the over, two things. One, who am I really going to bet against them when they square off against them on the field directly on this schedule? And the ones that potentially could challenge them or would be most likely, you have some extenuating circumstances. Kentucky and Ole Miss, for instance, or even Missouri, all come to Athens. Auburn, you get them fairly early in the season, at least at the end of September, when one would think uh, maybe Auburn will be better at the end under Hugh Freeze than at the beginning. So I just have a hard time seeing them lose before November. But I do think it is a, a good note of caution the complacency thing that Kirby says he fights against, trying to make sure that they want to continue to eat off the floor, which I believe it was Nolan Smith I saw on social media who was explaining that um, to the uh, to the NFL beat writers exactly what that meant and how how Kirby had started that. So I think Georgia's the favorite easily to win the SEC, and I, I think they'll probably do so again. Yeah, um, would be fun to have a uh, Georgia-Alabama SEC title game or Georgia-LSU because I just think LSU, they could see a better version of LSU in uh, in Atlanta this year. Well, let's go to LSU with one final note on Georgia that I think is being a little overlooked. So much about the change at quarterback, they're changing at offensive coordinator too. Todd Munkin yep. gone, Mike Bobo in. And, you know, Mike Bobo has a wealth of experience, but it's different. And that is 
you know, that's something that remains to be seen. New quarterback, new coordinator, maybe slightly difference in a slight difference in philosophy, though. I think Georgia has adopted the Alabama mantra of the coordinators come in and run largely the Georgia offense and you adapt your philosophy to what's in place as opposed to the, you know, wholesale changes that maybe some other head coaches go. It would be easy to go Alabama, but since LSU won the SEC West last year and they do have a returning quarterback and they do have returning stars on defense, what about LSU? Brian Kelly's second year, Jaden Daniels comes back, set an LSU record rushing yards by a quarterback. They've got Malik Neighbors, Kyron Lacey on the outside. Uh, they've got running backs. They've got Harold Perkins. Uh, star freshman linebacker last year is going to move around a little bit more. Mason Smith returns from injury. Uh, Mackay Wingo is back on the defensive front. Uh, the one thing that if you look at the deep metrics at LSU wasn't really last year was explosive offensively, but they were efficient. How do you evaluate LSU going into the season? Yeah. I'll start with Mason Smith. I think Mason Smith is like a top 10, top 15 type NFL draft pick. He is every bit of the archetype of the dominant interior SEC defensive lineman, the type of guy you need up front to win the SEC. And we've seen Jalen Carter-ish, you know, he's not as good as Jalen Carter. Jalen Carter was pretty special, but he is in that, in the highest class of SEC D lineman. He's back, he's healthy, he's looked great. And then Harold Perkins, Reese, you'd be happy to know, is my early candidate for my Quinton Johnson-esque man crush this year. Uh, Harold Perkins is one of the twitchiest, freakiest athletes I've seen in college football. And with a year of refinement and uh, a, a year of learning under Matt House, who obviously you know was an NFL coach for, for a long period of time before he came back to the SEC, he was at Kentucky as the DC, came back to LC. I just really think there could be some special things from that front seven at LSU. And ultimately in the SEC, that's where you uh, win. And then explosion is, is, is a great question. Um, you know, is Kayshawn Booty addition by subtraction? I, I don't know. I remember the, all the, the tumult last year when he seemed to mail it in, in that, uh, in that FSU game. But I also, after Malik neighbors don't see like a super dominant SEC receiving core. I see a good one. Um, I think the O line is good, but I, I, I do like LSU. Um, I, I think they're. Uh, I think this is solid. And, and Brian Kelly, if he's favored, wins games. Mm-hmm. We've seen it. We've seen it again. We've seen it again. Got a transfer and Omar Spades from Oregon State was all Pac twelve mm-hmm. linebacker. They got a defensive lineman from Texas. Got a wide receiver from Alabama. Uh, which it's really funny watching these uh, programs switch players who maybe aren't playing as much as they would like one place and they go from Georgia to Alabama or Alabama to LSU or wherever it might be. Um, the LSU win total is nine and a half. I have the tough opener in Orlando against Florida State. Uh, they have to go to Ole Miss. They have to go to Missouri. They go to Alabama. Where are you? Over, under nine and a half. I'm going to go over. Yeah. I I, I mean, look, the, the Florida State game is a coin, a true coin flip type game. And we've talked about this. The loser is not out of the playoff run at that point. They just have to be darn near close to uh, darn near close to perfect. But look, tricky schedule going to Mississippi State's never easy. Um, going to Old Miss is never easy, you know, and obviously in Tuscaloosa. But but I think they can get to I think they can get to 10 wins. Um, they're going to win the ones they should. And, and Kelly's going to win half the coin flips. I, I agree. I think 10 is the right number for them. So I'll take the 
over on LSU. The real question becomes, who wins the SEC West? Is it Alabama, LSU, or maybe you're going to go off the board at some point? But it is a, it, it's a real year of change in Tuscaloosa. Tommy Reese from Notre Dame, the offensive coordinator. Kevin Steele is back for another tour of duty as a defensive coordinator, um, taking over for Pete Golding, who went to Ole Miss. They only return four starters on offense, five on defense, and they've got a quarterback question. Now, they look, they have a loaded running back room, and they're building their entire philosophy in this preseason camp around tough, nasty offensive line, old school run the ball, which they have not done well the last two seasons. You know, the last two seasons, um, they have been, they have allowed 167 tackles for loss and 63 sacks. And Bryce Young saved them. All right. Look, he was a magician who made up for a world of deficiencies, and now they don't have that at quarterback. So they're trying to do it a different way. A lot of good players coming back on defense, led by Dallas Turner, Chris Braswell, and Kool-Aid McKinstry. Um, But I think there are as many questions about Alabama because of youth, because of quarterback that we've seen in recent years. Tough schedule, but a lot of the tough games at home. Uh, Win totals 10.5. How do you evaluate Alabama? So it's it's interesting, Reese. I got a a couple scout pieces coming out the next few weeks, and uh, spent some time on the phone. So we're taping this on Tuesday, on Monday, I guess, with some scouts. Who most of the national scouts now have gone through Bama, um, you know, this summer already and peeked at them. And uh, you know, one one of the takeaways I'm gonna be writing about this the next few weeks is that, like, in terms of high end draftable talent that guys are looking at right now, you meaning some some guys can emerge and will emerge. Texas probably has more than Alabama. Which may which may surprise some people, just because look, it has been a machine for Nick Saban, right? It has just been a relentless machine for him. Um, but when you when you look at the relative dips, I, I think there, and it's all relative, right? It, it means they've gone from the top four to the next four in the sport. But dips are dips still. Um, I I just don't think their receiver room has the the level of playmaker certainly that it did in twenty twenty when they had one of the best ones of all time. Um, and they go, Jermaine Burton's good. Corey Brooks is talented. They're, they, they have been loading up with some of the best players in the country. So it, I'd be naive to say guys couldn't emerge. But right now they don't have like a top 50 type pick there. And you go back three or four years ago, they had three top 25 type picks. So there's just like, again, it's the, the margins are really, really thin at the top. And I mean, look, to me, quarterback is a five alarm concern, Reese. There's there's no other way to say it. Like they had to go, they had to go against all of Nick Saban's best process judgments and go get someone in the spring. And, you know, Tyler Buckner is a very good quarterback. Um, is he good enough to win you the SEC? Is he good enough to win you the national championship? I don't know. Um, and they're and they don't know yet either, because there's still some ambiguity as we tape this over who will start the season for them. And I still think that person who starts may not be the person who ends yet. So um, this is the most skeptical I, I've been of Bama um, going into the season in a while. And again, look, there's a lot of wasted airspace of people predicting <laughs> doom and gloom for Nick Saban. I'm not predicting that. I am just saying that if there is another notch of regression, it would not be surprising. I think – I think they're really talented, and when I say this, I'm not saying they don't have a chance this year. I think they might be a year away. 
for some of the reasons you've mentioned. They've got a couple of offensive linemen that might be their best guys or two of their three best guys who are really young. Uh, one's true freshman. They've got some young skill players who might need another year, and they certainly have to figure out the quarterback situation. Watch, watch the running back, Jam Miller, who has, who has made a big move in that loaded running back room. I don't know what they're going to do. That's a win for all of us, by yeah. the way. The more jam, the better. Yeah, right? sure. <laughs> um, I think they'll start with Jalen Milrow. I figure that two or three quarterbacks will play in the opener. Um, hmm. It seems that Milrow has been the most consistent in practice in a group that hasn't exuded consistency. And perhaps uh, one thing, if they don't get it solved early, in terms of somebody to use the Saban vernacular, if no one takes the bull by the horns at quarterback down the run, down the line, keep an eye on true freshman Dylan Lonergan, who hmm. probably has thrown the ball uh, as well or better than any of them. But but you know he was in for spring, but he's a freshman. That would be down the line and would probably indicate that things had not gone well at that position. But I think they'll start with Milrow. And if Milrow can figure it out, mostly just take care of the football. But that's the biggest issue. He is a playmaker. And if they're planning to run the football, then adding another weapon at quarterback, you can't, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better one than, than Jalen Milrow um, as a runner and, and developing as a passer, too. I'll, uh, I'll pick on our friend and colleague Greg McElroy a little bit here because uh, Nick Saban evoked his name uh, at SEC Media Days to us in the uh, ESPN.com room. And it, it, I thought it was probably the most telling moment of what this Alabama season could unfold like him mentioning Greg. Now, Greg was a great game manager, a very good college quarterback. I, his record as a starter is probably like embarrassingly good win percentage wise. So this is certainly not a knock on Greg. I think Greg was a seventh round pick by the Jets and, you know, had a modest NFL career, but Greg was not Tua. He was not Bryce Young. Um, he was not a dynamic game breaker playmaker, but he managed things. So Nick mentioning him, and then he mentioned a very specific sequence of the Alabama-Georgia title game, the one Kirby actually mentioned uh, earlier. No, I'm sorry. The different title game. This was the title game where Georgia was actually trailing in the fourth quarter that, and beat Alabama. That was 21. Yes. Yeah, the first, 21, first yeah, the 21 title game. Georgia. He yeah. mentioned, like, out of the blue, like, specific play sequences on how Georgia ended up winning that game. And he was a little bit off in his actual quote, but I went back and, like, looked at the play-by-play. And what he appreciated about how Georgia actually sealed that game was it was a uh, I think it was a nine play drive where seven of them were runs now I'm I'm fudging that probably too there was a pass to Brock Bowers that capped the drive that's probably the highlight that lives in perpetuity but there were a lot of like six yard carry three yard carry we're here in the fourth quarter biggest baddest toughest teams playing each other and we are running the ball down your throat and he mentioned that sequence, and I think that's how Nick Saban envisions this team. I think he sees J.C. Latham. Tyler Booker is one of the best underclassmen offensive linemen in the country. He's an interior lineman. You, I think, referenced uh, uh, Elijah Pritchett, uh, Pritchett as, the, uh, as the young freshman who they really think a lot of. Um, so I really feel like Jalen Milrow as the quarterback of a team that's going to jam the ball down your throat and pass you judiciously – seems to be the best way for Alabama to win games this year. 
those advanced stats of turnover-worthy plays. Milrow has been high in that regard. That is, that's the one thing you'll have to eliminate. If you're going to be the quarterback for Nick Saban team, you first have to take care of the football. If you can make gargantuan plays, go ahead. But, you know, he's, he's not going to go for that. So are you going over or under Alabama at 10.5? I'm going to go under, Reese. I'm going – I am too by, by oh. half game. I'm gonna. Yeah, that, I'm gonna say a couple of losses find them while they're trying to uh, trying to sort things out. I think by the end, uh, if they get if they develop if they get to the SEC championship game with those two losses, uh, they'll give Georgia a handful. But I think there are going to be some growing pains. I'm going to take the under at ten and a half also and say ten on the nose is where they wind up. At Texas A&M would scare me a lot if I'm Nick Saban. Which is considering what happened last time they went there, combined with the pure talent of Texas A&M. We'll get to them, but the talent collected there is indisputable and tough place to play. And you just, I think you mentioned this earlier, and I'll, I'll put a bow on Alabama on this. Bryce Young bailed them out of incalculable bad situations, and they just don't have that anymore. And I think that will cost them a game along the line. And and I'll tease, I'll, I'll leave with this tease. A lot of scouts think Texas is going to go to Alabama and win. The question about Texas to me, and I won't go into a future SEC team yet, I know they're going to play great that night. They will play great. The question is, are you going to play great when, when you see Kansas? Are you going to play great when you see you know Iowa State or whoever? That, that's the real test. There, I won't get many questions answered about, about Texas and Tuscaloosa on that second Saturday night of the season. I know they're going to play great. What are you going to do when – the spotlight's not quite as big when you haven't built to that moment quite as much. You mentioned Texas A&M coming off a five and seven season. They return a ton of starters. They also lost a lot of guys in the portal after that, in that great recruiting class to borrow from our friend, Jimbo Fisher. Have you seen 15? Have you seen Connor Wegman? He can throw it now. I'll tell you that. And he certainly showed flashes last year, uh, throwing for nearly 900 yards, eight touchdowns, no picks in limited time. Got Anaya Smith, they've got Evan Stewart as weapons. Uh, they've got the entire offensive line back. Damani Richardson returns on defense. They've got a bit of a, a potentially tricky game. I guess if you're five and seven coming off that season, every game is tricky when they go to Miami in week two. And then there's the marriage of Jimbo and Bob Petrino to try to get the AM offense going, which uh, went nowhere last year. They finished unranked the last uh, couple of years. They lost six straight for the first time in half a century. And this is a this is a pivotal year for Texas A&M in the Jimbo Fisher era. And bringing in Petrino, it feels like that maybe uh, maybe the, that type of shakeup is what was needed. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We'll start at the in the in the in the big picture uh, with with Jimbo, and then we'll go we'll we'll go to the macro. I think my uh, my ultimate takeaway on Texas A and M race is I have no idea, right? Like, like the the talent hasn't been reflected on the field, but I'm certainly not going to be negligent and just think Jimbo Fisher is a terrible coach. There's too much good. There's too much too much good product put on the field. And Bobby Petrino, for all his flaws and neck braces and scandals and <laughs> NFL burnouts, the dude can call a play, right? The dude can call a play. And it usually starts well with Bobby Petrino, and it usually ends really poorly. So uh, if you're a Texas A&M fan, you hope the, the start 
launches him out to another uh, another another opportunity because opportunity tends to find people who win. Um, he is not a built to last guy, and I would think if you look at places he's gone and how they've done after he's left, that that track record would show. But boy, you want to script those first ten plays? I don't know if there's a lot of modern football coaches who I would pick above Bobby Petrino to study a defense for a week, put a script with a talented guy like Connor Wigman with, you know, you forgot about the immortal Moose Muhammad too. Uh, like yeah. they've got, they've That's got, right. they've yeah. got weapons. They've got weapons. They've got, they've got weapons. Ruben Owens top tailback recruit in the country um, is, is, you know, going to get significant snaps for, for the Aggies. So I just really think like in the big picture, I can argue that they win 10, but they also lost six consecutive games last year. That's hard to do with a roster that that good. So I think they're like, if I was a bit gambler and a better, and I'm not, our, our friend Stanford Steve is, I would run so far away from Texas A&M because the, the, the potential variance is, uh, is significant. The one safe bet is that uh, I don't think Jimbo Fisher will get fired because at the conclusion of the 2023 season, he would be owed nearly $77 million. Now we are in an era of funny money. We are in an era of billions with a B. We are in an era where just money is, is tossed around, but I'm, I don't care how much oil money you have, how much natural gas money you have. I don't see someone getting paid $77 million not to coach or like say they negotiated an upfront settlement and you had to give them $50 million. Like that is a, that's what you donate to build a, like a facility, mm-hmm. not like hush money. So anyway, it's uh, it's, it, it will be fascinating because if those losses stack up again, that conversation will heat up just, just inherently. We're at an interesting crossroads right now, Reese, between this multi-billion dollar business that we're all part of, this multi-billion dollar entertainment business that we're all part of, um, the, the top entities of it being tethered to these huge numbers, like these, like I remember five years ago, I'd be like, well, there's no way UCLA can fire Jim Mora. They'd owe him $15 million. Well, they did it. Uh, no way. Arizona State can fire Todd Graham. They don't, oh, they did it. So like, what's the next level of that? I think this season without a, not a lot of obvious guys in the hot seat, we're going to see that level tested. Like if Florida's God awful is the 30 something million for, uh, Billy Napier, too much money. I mean, I, I'm not wishing or hoping any of this, but I do think we're going to start seeing it tested. Tom Allen's owed about 20 million. Anyway, I'm totally hijacking the SEC podcast with uh, with random carousel stuff. We'll have plenty of time for that. But I do think, like, is Jimbo Fisher on the hot seat? I'll give you 77 million reasons why he's not. I don't think he is. It's direction of program. If this doesn't work, um, sort of like we said about Miami and the ACC podcast, if this doesn't work, what in the world are you going to do now? Um, I do think A&M will be improved. I think they lose four. Eight and four seems about right. They have some tough road games, the over-under seven and a half. So I'm going to spin the wheel of fortune and say they get to eight and barely get above the win total. I'm going to take below uh, the, all the, the, the vowel combination of Jimbo, Adazio, and Petrino uh, creates enough tension to, uh, to, for them to, to duck below, uh, below that seven and a half. I mean, they lost six games in a row last yeah. year. It's, this- hard to, it's hard to erase that from your, uh, from your memory. The caveat is if it goes poorly, it will go poorly. It will go Ooh. completely down the drain. 
if it gets we'll need sight. a Netflix documentary on that like we got on Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> Which was extraordinarily disappointing, by the way. Uh, yeah, not great. Under underwhelmed. Great. Completely underwhelmed. Yeah. There's some fun. Oh yeah, I forgot about the Scooby Doo costume. Yeah. But like, nah. Yeah. Nah. Not great. You know, a team that I'm pretty high on that also had an ugly losing streak, lost five of their last six, is Ole Miss. Jackson Dart, I know they added Spencer Sanders, they added Walker Howard. I've believed in Jackson Dart since I first saw him at USC. Quinshawn Judkins, uh, preseason All-American type running back, one of the best in the country, coming back for his sophomore year. They added some receivers, including uh, Zachary Franklin from UTSA, who has almost 3,400 yards in his career. Brought in Monty Montgomery, who's been a tackling machine for Louisville. A couple of other transfers. Um, they are at Tulane early, and they're at Alabama early. So they could get off to a tough start. But Ole Miss win total at seven and a half. Because I'm a uh, – they're also at Georgia. I, I like Ole Miss. I'm going to go under by a half, even though I I think I think they could be pretty good. But that's a – that's a pretty tricky schedule, starting with the trip to Tulane, then to Alabama. They do have to go to Auburn. They get LSU at home. They have the misfortune of drawing Georgia on the other side in Athens, which is a loss. Um, I think they're going to be pretty good and could still wind up 7-5. and five. Yeah, I, I, will, I will take the over, and if they don't hit it, Reese, I think it becomes like they become another one of these interesting portal teams, NIL teams, right? You saw Texas A&M famously flop. You saw Miami knock it off the ground. Um, is it a coincidence they lost four in a row to close last season? Obviously, they lost to Alabama, and they played them pretty well. So it, it wasn't like this a complete flop. But if you have guys on your team that are there temporarily, and Lane Kiffin has actually talked about this a little bit. Um, I think McGee mentioned it on your podcast the other day. Uh, how invested are they when think when championship aspirations are dimmed? When you when you go to Tuscaloosa or Athens like they have to do and, and you get hammered, which is a realistic possibility for anyone who goes to those places. So I, I just think it's interesting. I don't think Lane would tell you he managed the end of last season well. And um, that will ultimately determine whether they hit this. But I, but my gosh, are they talented? You know, mm-hmm. like you just you just look through. I think Judkins, you could argue, is a top three running back in college football. Um, they went and got a lot of dudes who are the best dudes in their program. Uh, I think Walker Jones, their their NIL guy, has got to be one of the one, one of the MVPs if they do end up with a with a, with a decent season because they look they they have bold face names at key positions. I mean they they stocked their quarterback room so nobody else could get a good quarterback. <laughs> Spencer Sanders and and Walker uh, and Walker Howard, and they're going to keep their starter. So yeah, I am. Uh, I, it just it's always hard for me to look at other variables and go against talent. So I'm going to pick talent in the open. Let's go a little bit up-tempo here with a few other teams in the mm-hmm. SEC West that we haven't hit yet. Arkansas has new coordinators on both sides of the ball. Dan Enos coming back. He has experience at Arkansas in the past. The offensive coordinator, Travis Williams, was at UCF. Marcus Woodson also coming over in a co-coordinator role on the defensive side. Not many starters back, but two stars. If you have more experience at quarterback, probably no one in SEC play, in K.J. Jefferson, uh, one of five SEC players that have 2,500 yards passing and 500 uh, rushing yards. Um, Rocket Sanders went for nearly 1,500 yards, but they don't have much on the offensive line. Uh, They lost a bunch of close games last year, and the win total for 
the pigs is six and a half times they'll turn on that jukebox. I'm gonna I'm gonna go under there, and despite the two stars and the experience at quarterback, the offensive line problem concerns me. How poor they were in pass defense uh, concerns me. They they had a bunch of sacks last year, but they lost a good number of the guys who got them. So, you know, I, I'm going to go under there, even though I, I do understand the fact that they are capable of pulling an upset when you have two stars like K.J. Jefferson and Rocket Sanders. Just be a little contrarian. I'll, I'll take the edge over. I just think that the horsepower – of KJ and Rocket. Uh, I do love uh, Jacoby Criswell, by the way, their backup who'd been at North Carolina. He'll take over for Jefferson after next year. He's from the state of Arkansas. He's a guy that people are really high on and, and could be a star in no, the SEC. Uh, pardon me for interrupting. Did you see that throw he made in practice into the win the other day that was on social media? I did not see oh, that. Oh, it, it must have been 65 on a rope. And Pittman came over and said, you know, if you – want to get a little power into the throw, maybe put your legs. It was obviously being completely facetious. It was one, it was Joe Milton-esque in terms of, it was, yeah. he, he let it fly, man. So, yeah. yeah. Remember Criswell and Drake May at this time last year were in a legitimate camp battle. It wasn't a, we're going to call it a camp battle so you don't transfer, which is many of the camp battles that we deal with. It was an actual, like, we don't know who's going to win. Um when I was there writing about Sam Howell, a lot of people thought Criswell would win the job. So anyway, talented dude who who's going to uh, emerge there. I agree. The O-line scares me. Two new coordinators scare me. Um, it'll be interesting to see that the talent and where the strengths are may not be Dan Enos' strengths as a coordinator. So, um, and he, again, he's he's played different ways, but I, I want to see it all come together. But I'm going to go with, with the horses uh, over the uh, ambiguities. Okay. Mississippi State, after the passing of Mike Leach, Zach Arnett in his first year was a defensive coordinator, new offensive coordinator, and a new offensive philosophy. And Kevin Barbet, but they do return uh, Will Rogers, who you know, has thrown for nearly 11,000 yards and 82 touchdowns in his career. Um, they've got Tula Griffin at wide receiver. He's also a dangerous uh, kick returner. Uh, they've got Buki Watson and Jet Johnson who just tackle everybody on the defensive side. And the Mississippi State win total is right in that cluster with virtually everybody in the conference at six and a half. What do you have on the dogs? Yeah, I, you know, I think they can I think they can squeeze over it. That Arizona game in week two is a huge swing game for them for bowl eligibility and uh and in, in beyond. But I feel like you beat Southeast Louisiana, you beat Arizona, you beat Southern Miss and Western Michigan, you can you can find three SEC wins. So um I I'm gonna uh I'm going to take them in the over. Will Rogers, I think honestly is a little underappreciated just mm-hmm. for all that he has done and passed on and uh you know, there'll be some growing pains for Zach Arnett, but he has impressed so far. I thought he's comported himself pretty well. We're around him at media day and saw him. They they will be hard nosed and hard edged defensively as they were when he was the uh, when he was the coordinator there. Matt Brock gets promoted, do the same thing. So, yeah, I'll stay uh, I'll stay optimistic on old Starkville, and maybe maybe we'll hear those cowbells ringing on College Game Day in Week Three. Reese, uh, I know you've been you've pushed that. That's the that's the LSU visit. I mean, I'm so torn on the Arkansas, the Mississippi State at, at six and a half. Yeah. I went under on Arkansas uh, by a half. And uh, because of 
because of the schedule that you mentioned, the home road works out fairly well for them. I'll, I'll, I'll let them, I'll say the, you know what? I'm not. My gut says go under. I'm going to go under. So I'll, I'm going to go under on Mississippi State by half. Also, sitting at six and a half on the win total, the Auburn Tigers. Hugh Freeze takes over. Ton of guys coming in the portal. Brings in Peyton Thorne from Michigan State, who had a really good season two years ago. Jarquez Hunter has great speed at running back. They added Brian Petit from USF, who was an All-American kick returner a couple of years ago. They've had trouble in the offensive line, but they uh, and they're going to have to replace almost the entire offensive line, which might not be a bad thing, you know, because they they have had some issues there. New coordinators, new everything, but they do return the third most production in the SEC. Oddly enough, that's hmm. largely probably because of of Hunter and some of the guys who make tackles. Go to Cal, go to A and M in the early part of the season. They have Georgia at home. It could, and then LSU the second week of October. I think it could. I think they'll be better at the end than the beginning, but I think it could get rough for Auburn. I'm going to go early on. I'm going to say they go under, but show vast improvement and probably clip somebody they're not supposed to before the end of the season. Six and a half is the number. I'll say they go six and six. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will take the under too. I think prior to investing any clarity on Jarquez Hunter's status is is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the last I'd seen, and Hugh talked about it at Media Day, and I don't think uh, I don't think anything has broken in, in tangibly in terms of uh, in terms of whether he can uh, in terms of whether he can he can play or not. So. Um, it was, uh, I believe Hugh sort of said it was a school issue and he couldn't comment on it, but, uh, whatever it is, it's not, you know, there, it is not clear. And I think he is the best player on the roster. So in without him, and I think he is a lot of that returning production that you, uh, mm-hmm. that, that you mentioned. So yeah, that stretch at A&M, Georgia at home at LSU, old Miss it like that Ooh. will be, yeah, that will be hard. Um, look, there's, you know, there's. Hugh Freeze has given us reasons to have faith in him as a head coach and uh, as a play caller, even though he's going to let Philip Montgomery call plays, I imagine there'll be some hand guiding and some, you know, the, his, his influence will be felt there. And Philip Montgomery is a great coach in his own right. Um, but I really think uh, Reese that, you know, that this will be a year of struggle for the uh, Tigers and understandably so the roster just wasn't what it needs to be. Let's move over now, Pete, to the SEC East, and we've already talked extensively about Georgia through our conversation with Kirby Smart and then slightly afterward. I'm not sure that Georgia has an obvious challenger in the East, but if there is one, one would think it's Tennessee. Tennessee coming off an 11-win season, won the Orange Bowl against Clemson. They have Joe Milton at quarterback, who's got the biggest arm in college football. There are high hopes for him based on his performance after Hendon Hooker got hurt. Um, Brew McCoy, Squirrel White as weapons, Jabari Small at running back, and Jalen Wright. Got some uh, playmakers on defense, um, brought in transfer from BYU. Really good in turnovers last year. They were plus 11, had 27 sacks, forced 22 turnovers overall, and that was sort of how they defended. They didn't really stop you, but if they did, it was usually because they turned the ball over. Now they got a new offensive coordinator with Alex Golish moving on to be a head coach at USF. Are the Vols a legit threat 
to Georgia in the East? I think they're a legit threat to beat Georgia. The biggest threat to beat Georgia on their schedule. Uh, that game obviously comes in Knoxville on uh, November 18th, my dad's birthday. Ah, happy um, birthday. And so, yeah, uh, big PETA. Um, but I, I just – I. I worry that with all the losses and all the replacement, um, be it the be it the receivers who went high in the draft, uh, obviously be it Hendon Hooker, that they will struggle with consistency a little bit this year. Much like they, uh, you know, got caught with the banana in the tailpipe against South Carolina last year. I just think this roster, as it matures, will be a little bit more susceptible to some of that. O line would really be a concern too. Um, they lost some. Uh, they lost some big key pieces. Uh, up front, especially on that left side. So I, uh, I am optimistic about Tennessee, but I don't know if they will uh, be an 11 win version of themselves. Pick up a transfer from Miami transfer from Texas to try to fortify that offensive line a little bit. The win total for the big orange coming off that 11 win season is nine and a half trip to Florida revenge game against South Carolina Sandwich game against UTSA, who they certainly should beat, but I think could be the best group of five team. Trips to Alabama, Kentucky, the always frightful trip to Missouri in November, then Georgia. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the under. I think this they I agree with you 100. percent I think they could beat Georgia on that day, possibly. But I'm not sure that you're going to have enough consistency, given what they face, to go over nine and a half. I feel like I've, I feel like they're a nine and three type team. Really good team, threat in every game they play. Might be better. Might be better than nine and three. But that's uh, that's how it feels to me. I'm going to go under same. I still i I say they may win, and I still think of you and I standing on the sideline last <laughs> yeah. year watching yeah. the Tennessee offensive line just get ragdolled by Jalen Carter and Stackhouse and those cats. So um, that said, it's all progress for Josh Heupel at this point. Mm-hmm. He's outkicked the the expected coverage by so much. Um, I really, uh, yeah, I really think that you know Tennessee will keep rolling. It, big Orange may just not be quite as big, right? I. Hundred percent. I think they're back. They're going to be a perennial factor uh, in the SEC, whatever the iterations are. If, they're, if it's all one big happy family, or if they go pods, or whatever it is they're going to do, they're going to be a factor. But I don't see them overtaking Georgia this year, and I don't see them getting to ten. Although it wouldn't be stunning. But if I'm forced to pick, I'll take the under by half game. One of the early season challenges for Tennessee will be going to Florida on September 16th. And the Gators uh, the Gators waste no time getting the season started. The opening Thursday night at Utah, game that they won in the Swamp last year, Tennessee in September, trip to Kentucky in September, have to go to South Carolina, have to go to LSU, have to go to Florida State. SP Plus says this is the toughest schedule. Anthony Richardson's gone. Wisconsin transfer, Graham Mertz has taken over at quarterback. They've got good running backs, Montreal Johnson, Trevor Etienne. Um, you know, they've got a couple of guys on defense that they've had transferring that they've tried to bolster things a little bit, including R.J. Moten from Michigan. Uh, did lose a running back, uh, Cam Carroll, who transferred in from Tulane. Florida, 
Florida feels like it didn't make the progress I anticipated last year, and their win total is low, five and a half. So you, to get the Gators to being 500, you're taking the over. But as I look at this, I see one, two, three, four, five near certain losses on their schedule, barring improvement that I don't see. Five and a half, I'm going to take the under and say they go five and seven. I uh, I uh, cameoed as ESPN's ugliest sideline reporter and uh, did the spring game uh, down in Gainesville this year. That was a joke, Reese. You should laugh when I call myself ugly. <laughs> because I don't believe it. I, I will tolerate no Pete Thamel appearance blasphemy on this podcast. You're and a handsome I, man. Your wife I, told I, me I came so. away. <laughs> I came away very unimpressed uh, with the with the Gators. Just they they seem like they're a year away. Uh, I will say the case for optimism is on the D line. Cam Jackson, the the nose tackle transfer from Memphis, is a good looking first two day pick in the draft kind of SEC defensive lineman. Um, they reloaded up there. Caleb Banks, who I believe came from Louisville, uh, was another guy who you're like, okay, that's what it's supposed to look like. Um, Look, Graham Mertz has started a lot of football games, uh, but he is not someone you hitch the belief train behind. Um, if you could really find some identity in the run game, but I don't love their offensive line either. So it's just it, Billy Napier is trying to build them into what he built at Louisiana in a lot of ways. And they've just got a long way to go. They were bigger and better than everybody. They had great players at Louisiana. Um they had a veteran quarterback. They had great tailbacks. They obviously had uh, Osiris Torrance, the guard, who was the first guard picked in the NFL draft last year, who later went to Florida. They just, in order to get to that mauling mode, which it appears he's transitioning to, they are not there yet. So um, I'm going to take them with the caveat that Billy Napier has an unflappable belief in his plan and process. And the fact that they're a year in and all this stuff is a big part of like the the belief bricks that are being built there. So perhaps that's where the surprise could come with the development, with the culture that he believes in, with the giant staff that he has set. Um, but I just don't see the players right now, and that's where my skepticism comes from. I, uh, agreed. I will say this. Uh, Anthony Richardson played great. You and I, we've said this a hundred times. I need to stop telling people that we were on the sidelines watching games. People know that. That's our job. But that Florida-Tennessee game early in the season, the Tennessee won. Florida played their tails off. I mean, they played hard, man. And, you know, so I think that's a a thing to feel positive about for the Gators. But they're probably going to be underdogs in seven games. They only have three true SEC home games. Um, it's just hard to find the wins. But I, I I actually believe in Billy Napier and believe in what he's going to be able to do long term. Patience is not in big supply for any SEC powerhouse, but Florida probably needs to exercise a little bit. The one thing, the one historical caveat here, and if you grew up in the South as I did, you knew that you know that prior to the arrival of the head ball coach Steve Spurrier in 1990, Florida was pretty much a sleeping giant who was narcoleptic. They stayed asleep. You know, they they just you know, people say if Florida could ever get it together, if Florida could ever get it together. And they never did until Spurrier became the head coach. Yet, 
if they have a losing season this year, it'll be the first time they've had three consecutive losing seasons since the 40s, I believe. So even with all of their struggles and wandering in the wilderness, they haven't really had a stretch like this. Um, but, you know, I, I do I do believe in Billy Napier. I think they can get it turned around, but I'm not sure this is going to be the year in which the tangible win-loss record progress is uh, manifested. Have you seen the 24 schedule? I have not peaked it. You know what? I did. Actually, the conference schedule, they basically get everybody, right? So I believe off the top of my head, out of league, they have UCF, Miami, and Florida State. Yes. I, th- I, I think that's right. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they have the league schedule, which is always going to be hard no matter what. So it's, again, I believe in Billy Napier. I think he's an excellent football coach. Um, it is a it is a pushing the ball uphill here. And, yeah, I can't see them hitting reset, by the way. I just, they, they, we talked about it earlier, about 30 million. Yeah. It's just, it's foolish. They they should. He's he's a good, he's yes. a good head coach. Yeah. They'll, they'll build a sustainable program with yeah. him. I really believe that. But there are going to be some more growing pains, and most of it's talent related. And uh, you know, they they probably need a real um, two year answer at quarterback. I don't know if you have a such thing as a long term answer at quarterback anymore. But if they could find it, well, they have DJ Lagaway, yeah. the blue chipper from Texas, coming in, and they've recruited their tails off. I should really give Billy Napier and his staff credit for that. They have recruited their tails off. They have recruited like Florida needs to recruit to compete for SEC championships. And that's really where it's rooted. But you can't hire a guy to rebuild and expect a quick fix. Right. Right. Yeah. Like they're two totally different things. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's, I'm not saying that to Scott Strickland in the Florida brass. I'm saying that to the fan mm-hmm. base. Like you brought him in for a slow burn, not a flash and go. And that, I think that's what's needed. And also a tip of the cap to Scott Strickland for scheduling that way. I like everybody should schedule that way. The way Florida's going to, next year with all those non-conference games. Program on the rise, it seems, that they've certainly had moments of flashing, is South Carolina coming off an 8-5 and five season, finished 500 in the SEC last year. Spencer Rattler just caught fire late in the season, but he also threw a lot of interceptions, took a lot of sacks. Um, they've got a big try tight end in Trey Knox, an Arkansas transfer, after they lost a tight end in Jaheim Bell to Florida State. Uh, brought in a couple of tight ends. Got Juice Wells coming back. The carry-on joiner is back. Lost Jordan Birch, defensive lineman. Brought in Jordan Strayant from Georgia State, who led the nation in sacks, I believe, in the uh, lockdown year of 2020. Missed last season with injury. So they've lost some guys in the portal. They've gained some guys as well. Also lost Marshawn Lloyd, to uh, running back to USC. And they open up in that high-profile game against Drake May and the Tar Heels, the Battle of the Carolinas. They finish strong with those games against Tennessee, Clemson, and you know the barn burner in the bowl game against Notre Dame. Pulled some upsets last year. Lost some key players. Have some potential stars back. And the win total sits at six and a half. What do you make of Okaki? Yeah, and I think a lot of whether they go over that starts week one when we're going to be in uh, in Charlotte for uh, for that game. I mean, Spencer Rattler was a fascinating test case last year, and when you talk to people around that program, they they you know he was used to just the simplistic air raid 
and he was reading Mandarin, I guess, for the first couple of weeks of the season. And, and like it, it had to be somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, and but when it looked good, it looked really good. And uh, I'm working on a quarterback story for uh, for this week. So I talked to some scouts the last couple of days. And, you know, that who's number three, which will be an eternal podcast question. We've asked it and we'll ask it again. And there's some people who say, like, don't discount Spencer Rattler for that. Now, some people have been once got actually compared him to Jacob Eason, like five star, who everybody thought would be great, showed some flashes, transferred and kind of like was what he was, a fourth round pick who who didn't come into much. And I think that's what you can project reasonably now. But imagine if he comes out and out duels and look, that NC, that UNC pass defense hasn't oh, stopped yeah. anybody yeah, for right. the last two. I mean, that has been a sieve, a straight sieve. So um you could you want to talk about narrative changes, whoo, it could come fast because the arm talent is there. The turnovers were so ghastly mm-hmm. at Oklahoma that he he had to lose his job. Yeah. It was simple. But the what won him the job and made him the talent and quarterback that he was as a prospect still sits there. So um, if I had to set an over under on Spencer Rattler being drafted, I would put three and a half rounds right now. Is that, can I say number a hundred? Is yeah, that like three sure. and a half rounds yeah. about that? Yeah. This is our we'll, podcast. We'll you can do whatever you want. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I sort of diverted on Rattler a little bit, but I, I'm going to take the over. I, uh, I think, uh, I, I think cocky stays cocky and I think the talent level is increasing. They're not. I, I'm going to take the over also. Also you, you're always locked in with your recruiting guys. I've read about, but have not yet seen Ooh. this freshman wide receiver, Nicholas Harbor spelled a little unusually. So I hope I'm pronouncing yes. it correctly. What do you know about him? I mean, they, they are raving about him right now. And I can't wait to see him on that opening Saturday. Yeah, I think he's he's a specimen, Reese. And I think he has the potential to have a high impact. Um, there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back Paul Pascaloni on you here uh, from covering some summer camps when I was at the Daily Orange. Paul Pascaloni, old football maestro with his reading glasses perched on his nose, always said, the closer you are to the ball the harder it is to get on the field, right? Mm-hmm. And then the further away you get from the ball, the easier it is to get on the field. I did that right, didn't you I? You did, yes. Yes. So I feel like when when I've talked to coaches about really talented freshman receivers before, they typically aren't full throttle and everything. And I don't know this um, about Harvard, but like typically there's a package and there's some stuff tailored for them. Um, cause you might not want him into block and some different things like that. You see this with tailback. So mm-hmm. I would think he gets some plays and they are drawn up for him to succeed in space. Cause he is a, he is a, he's a beautiful football specimen. And, uh, yeah, he's one of those guys that gets you fired up for the season. Just like, what, what's he about? You know, the, you know what the adage is, I'm taking the over on them by the way, too, by half. The adage about that is if you don't, like somebody you don't want him in the game to block somebody like that well then give him the ball and let somebody else block for him instead you know it's like uh it's like the old uh it's like the old hymn plays i remember uh, nick saban once saying that about julio said sometimes you have to have some hymn plays what's a hymn play we're gonna throw the ball to him you know and maybe (laughs) carolina needs a few hymn plays for for their talented freshmen Let's, let's hit some a uh, little up-tempo here, but I do think Kentucky is an intriguing team. Liam Cohen back as offensive coordinator after one year working with the Rams. 
He's got Devin Leary, who had a torn pec, who ended his season at North Carolina State last year. But he's an experienced guy. Started 26 games in his career, throwing 62 touchdown passes. They've got some proven receivers around him. Dane Key, Barry and Brown both had good years. We've got J.J. Weaver, who've done pieces on a game day, rushing off the edge. And Kentucky's been really good on defense uh, the last few years. And last year had a little trouble. Um, even with Will Levis getting that offense going. So the Wildcats, let me take a peek at the win total for Kentucky. Six and a half, like seemingly everybody, not not called Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Tennessee, and the SEC. It's right around that six and a half, seven and a half range. Where do you lean on Kentucky? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on the over. I, I think the, the Leary-Liam-Cohen marriage, to me, Reese, is one of the more interesting ones in, uh, in the sport this year. Now, Joe Milton will give him the strongest arm, but Devin Leary isn't that far behind. There aren't too many people with bigger, pure arms in the sport than, uh, th- than Devin Leary. And where he's had to catch up and where he struggled at spots at NC State was with his processing in the, in the mental part of the game. So enter Liam-Cohen who comes in from the NFL, who's going to bring in NFL concepts, and it's going to look like it should look like. Like, if Devin Leary has a huge year this year, don't be surprised if he makes a big jump in the NFL's eyes. Because, look, they want that cannon. They want that bazooka. They want it to look like he looks like. He's a big, strapping guy with a with a bazooka sitting on his shoulder. So I'm excited to see what he can do. I feel like the uh, – I feel like the talent is uh, is is there around him. That O line was really a big weakness last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the poor O lines in the SEC. There's a, there's a feeling from Mark Stoops there that that's going to get better. So I'm uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what he can do. And I feel like that offense gets back on the rails a little bit after being off the rails. Last year. They're going to need to protect Leary, and as you mentioned, they were third worst in the country last year, they gave 47 sacks and you know, Leary's Leary's a good player. He's not going to, um, he's not going to run away from a bunch of pressure. So, and a lot of wiggle there. So, but he's a, he's a good quarterback and I, I'm going to take the over barely by a half game on that with Kentucky, largely on the strength of their defense. And I think they will be better on offense with the return of Cohen and with Leary at quarterback. Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri, game under 500 last year. Uh, they were vastly, vastly improved on defense last year. And strangely enough, uh, given his background, it was the offense that had trouble getting going. Um, got Brady Cook, Sam Horn, Jake Garcia, Miami transfer, all, uh, you know, however the quarterback race eventually shakes out. Luther Burden, who we seemingly profiled every week on game day during the warm-ups. I'm going to get him the ball. I'm going to get him the ball. And they kind of weren't able to as much as they would like for a five-star talent uh, like that. They've got a couple of terrific cornerbacks, and Enos Rakestraw and Chris Abrams-Danes, who broke up 14 passes uh, last year, and Rakestraw broke up a dozen himself. Uh, they were they were really, really good on defense last year, but it didn't translate into a ton of wins. Here comes Mizzou, over-under, you guessed it, six and a half for the win total. Are you going over or under that? I feel like I've picked all these over. Um, I love the Missouri defense. 
Uh, again, it's not the Georgia defense, but I think it is a higher end SEC defense. Uh, Tyron Hopper is a guy who a lot of scouts who've gone through Georgia, I'm sorry, who've gone through Missouri this uh, summer. Uh, really, uh, really pops. And I think both their corners will be drafted. And Blake Baker, you can do a lot with that when you've got two guys on the outside who, who are draft picks. Um, I think their D-line is strong, but not overwhelming. Um, and yeah, I think Luther Burden is going to make another jump. I think he had a pretty good freshman year. Again, I don't think he was It's just hard. Like not a ton of freshman receivers just sprint out of the gate and dominate, but he was good in special teams in the return game. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really going to be between uh, Brady Cook and Sam Horn. As growing up a Red Sox fan of my age, there was a prospect in Pawtucket named Sam Horn who's supposed to be the great. And I think there's even a, a, a Red Sox fan site called Sons of Sam Horn. So I'm, I'm excited for uh, the Sam Horn, Aaron. He is a baseball player, too, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was a, uh, he was a draft pick. I'm sure you actually probably know his name through your, through your baseball circles, uh, Reese. But – I think at this point, it's it's weird that the Drinkwitz era is because he had a reputation as a quarterback whisperer. They really haven't found anyone to whisper to yet. So um, any hesitation goes on there. But I feel like you can beat South Dakota, Middle Tennessee State, and Memphis with a good defense, and you can find a couple other wins from there. I'm going to take it on the over, too. And by the way, this is a little bit of an aside on Sam Horn. What If he winds up being the quarterback there, and Devin Brown winds up being the quarterback at Ohio State. We've got one guy wearing jersey number 21 and horn, and Brown's wearing 33, a quarterback at Ohio State. What, what, all ever since the NFL? Sammy Ball, yeah. right? Did you hear yeah, that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Ryan Day wanted it to be for Larry Bird. And obviously, my Boston leanings, I, I, I related to that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, what do we, I think ever since the NFL, lifted the restriction and said, okay, you know, you can wear those single-digit numbers if you want to on defense in different spots and all of these things. Now, so we're going crazy. We're going the other direction. So I'm going to have to wait and see how it looks. It kind of with 33 and 21, I'm gonna have to, I may like it. But you remember when, um, when it was Devin, Devin Gardner at Michigan, right? He, and they were doing that yep. thing where they wore the historic numbers and he wore like yep. Tom Harmon's 98. I wasn't a fan of that. That didn't look right. It just looked weird. Oh, let go of your pearls. Stop screaming at the clouds. We'll be okay. I know. We'll be okay. This looks weird. We'll make it. I was just, all I could think of, well, all I could think of is that someday he's going to show, you know, his kids or his grandkids this great play that he made. And they're going to be going, why did you wear 98? But, you know, I guess you're Daffa the Fedora to Tom Harmon. So that is old school a little bit. So I'm going over with Missouri based on the defense too. Very skeptical of the offense, but but we'll see. That brings us to the Vanderbilt Commodores. Uh, Vanderbilt greatly improved last year. Five and seven. Won a couple of conference games. Bringing back a quarterback they believe in, in A.J. Swan. Uh, They've got Will Shepard and Jaden McGowan on the Outside to give them a couple of good receivers. Uh, former Clemson transfer Kane Patterson is playing linebacker there. He left to play with his younger brother, who's there. Um, you know, offensively, here's an obscure stat for you. You know, in goal-to-go touchdown situations on offense last year, Vanderbilt ranked ahead of Georgia and Alabama. How about that? 
But the defense gave up. They probably had a few less reps. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's probably true too. But the defense gave up a bunch of yards, over 460 yards per game uh, last year. The Vandy win total going into the season is three and a hook. Means you need to get them to four. They open against Hawaii. They get Wake at home. Sam Hartman less Wake. Kentucky and Missouri uh, in the early part of the season. Get Georgia at home. Have to go to Ole Miss. Can they get to four? I'll, Over or under? I'll, yeah, I'll get them to four. I mean, they won. They won five games last year, and I I have no reason to think they've regressed at all. Like, uh, I actually went through there uh, when I went to SEC Media Days and spent some time with Clark Lee going over the roster. And, like, they do feel like there's just a collective improvement. And that's a place where continuity is a competitive advantage. And they've lost a guy or two, you know what I mean, that they, that they didn't want to. Uh, an edge rusher went to, uh, to Auburn. They had a tailback go to Kentucky, I believe. Uh, but for the most part, the, the Shepherds, Ricky Wright, uh, McGowan, like there's, you know, there are some good SEC players there. And I'm, I'm not saying they're going to go 10 and two, but um, I don't think a bowl is outlandish. I think that over under number is pretty low, actually. That number and BC's number were like weirdly low to me. I'm going to go over. Um, their five wins last year equaled their total from the last three seasons. And I'll, I'll, I'll say there's enough momentum there uh, to get to that four mark. They, you know, you're dangerous to bet against a Dave Clawson coach team. And you mentioned on an earlier podcast how good uh, Mitch Gaddis had been stepping in for Sam Hartman. But I don't think that's an unwinnable game for Vanderbilt. Uh, week zero, they get Hawaii. So they could get off, uh, you know, 2-0, 3-0 start and maybe have a have a chance to get to, get to four wins. So now I, I should have asked you to say I might have neglected to do so to put us on the spot about playoff in a couple of these conferences, but we need to we playoff. need to hit this. We know uh, it's unfathomable that this group of SEC teams wouldn't have a playoff team. So the two pronged Greg Sankey would burn the sport yeah, to the ground. The two pronged question: First of all, will they have two playoff teams, and if so, who? And if not, who's the one? I assume you're going to say Georgia, but do they get two? And if so, who are they? I don't think so. Uh, I think they get one. I think it's Georgia. And um, I think LSU is the top candidate to be the second. But I uh, I think there's too many uh, trapdoors, as you like to say, for the Tigers. And I also just think one to like nine, the sport is in the best shape it's been in the last five or six years. So there's going to be good arguments, one-loss arguments, other places where maybe there haven't been in some other years. And I say that saying Penn State joins Ohio State and Michigan as really high-end teams. There's three or four teams from the Pac-12 that could could rise up. Utah's won the league twice in a row. USC's the best they've been in a while. Washington's the best they've been since Peterson was there. Oregon's really good again. Um, so again, there's just the, it's a maybe it's one to twelve. There's like a better collection. Florida State is now announced itself as a contender, um, and we can go down the list there. So that that said, uh, I think the old the old SEC is going to be fighting for some elbow room here. Recently. And I believe this is our final conference preview podcast. So with that, I will answer the question and say uh, the SEC only gets one. It will be Georgia, and I think the four playoff teams are going to be Georgia, Michigan, USC, and Florida State. 
Hmm. Interesting. Got to take a flyer. You know, I will. Yeah. I will admit this. I'm really, really bullish on Florida State. Not to take yeah. us off the SEC for long. It's a quick point. I promise this to our producers. I'm bullish on them. But if there is one team in that preseason top 10 might fall out of the rankings group that does scare me, and I'm sure it's recent history that's making me fear this, it is them. You know, yeah. it, it is, it's, probably, it's probably them or maybe, maybe Washington. I have to uh, remember Washington is – in the top 10 preseason. They're I believe they are 10. Yeah, I, think it, I believe they're it would be, And I'm high on both of those teams, but those, sure. would be, those would be the two. But I think Florida State is going to come through, and I think they make the playoff, and they knock either LSU or Alabama out of that uh, second spot from the SEC. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to think too much alike because that's, no, that's never fun and a little bit scary. So I'm in an interesting crossroads here because – a lot of scouts really like Texas. And we'll talk about this more going into week two. And I've just started to do the reporting on this. But boy, people think Texas get 10 dudes drafted, right? When you get 10 dudes drafted, that's when you're in playoff territory, generally. Um, they have a left tackle who'll be the first one picked in the 24 draft, uh, 25 draft. Wow, we're getting, a, we're, we're already, you know, we're already, I'm already moving ahead here. Um, I just can't pick Texas because I don't think they've responded well enough to adversity. And I don't think they've shown the collective guts to come from behind. Um, but like, let it be said, Texas is talented and there are really smart football people who spend a lot more time on studying football than you and I do. And we spend a decent amount of time on it who think Texas can go to Tuscaloosa and win. Um, I just haven't seen the consistency in that program. And I am a bit brand biased by some of their, uh, for the, by their frenetic nature a bit. So that is a long way to filibuster me to say, I am going to take Georgia. I'm going to take Ohio State. I already took USC. Mm-hmm. I remember I said that yep. on the pod, so I had to do that. And Reese, I'm going to take Florida State too, man. I, I would, you know, when I was down there for that spring game, and again, we've quoted the O line stats so much that I feel like people are going to unsubscribe if we say it anymore. But <laughs> I just, I am a believer you need depth and experience on both lines, and they have it. Um, they have skill, Keon Coleman. Uh, the uh, the six seven Johnny Wilson from uh, Arizona State. I just I just think it's a nice package, man. I, it's in there is starting to develop. You have Jared Verse, top ten pick, like a, a collective swagger there that I think is real, and um, yeah, it can match their their boardroom chestiness. And what and what a way to wrap up the SEC preview edition of the podcast by at least giving a little bit of praise. To a program that would love to be in the SEC if we injected truth serum into them, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, really, really special thanks to Kirby Smart, who at this time of year, this close to the season, really generous with his time to spend a half hour or so with Pete and me. Hope you enjoy that part of the podcast. Thanks for listening to the College Game Day podcast. We'll be with you three times a week. You can see the entire thing, including the Kirby Smart interview in its entirety on YouTube. Encourage you to check that out. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for downloading this wherever you prefer to get your podcast.